Well, if you have a Bible and you take it and turn to 1 John, we have just started a series on the book of 1 John, and uh, today we're going to be looking at the first four verses which were just read for us. Let me pray for us. God, we need you. We, we need you. We need your word. Your word is truth. We need your word to set us free from all the things that enslave us, that we might be free indeed. So make yourself known and all your saving power. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, I want to ask a question that's not often asked in church, though it should be asked in church for obvious reasons. And the question is simply this. Why believe the Christian message? Why should anyone believe the Christian message, especially given the fact that there are so many other religious options out there? I mean, it doesn't take long in a society like ours to meet someone who is, uh, who you, you look at and you respect and you see these things in their life that look good and true, and they're not a Christian. They're a Hindu or a Muslim or seek. And so you ask, why Christianity then? Especially considering all the other religions. I mean, can we really say that Christianity is unique in any way? Aren't all religions really the same? Aren't they all leading up to the top of the mountain and they're just different paths to God? It's very popular to think that today and to say that, and there's a lot of appeal, especially in a multicultural society like our own, where many people believe many different things, and we're asking, how can we all just get along together? And that seems to be a good way forward. That's the way that we have chosen. But there's a professor at the University of Boston. His name is Stephen Prothero, and Stephen Prothero wrote a very important book. It's called God is Not One. And Prothero, he takes on this idea that all religions are really just saying the same thing. And he says that this idea, well, not only does it lack intellectual credibility, um, it's really disrespectful. It doesn't actually take people and what they're saying at their word because the different religions, even though they may have some ethical things on the surface that are similar, the golden rule, for instance. Once you dig deep down under them, they actually have very different views of God and of humanity and humanity's relationship to the world. I mean, some people believe that there are many gods. Some people believe no gods. Some people believe that God is personal. Others do not. Some people believe that humans are essentially good and that it's our environment that is the problem and our physical, our physicality, and we need to be rescued from that. Other people believe that, uh, that actually, no, humans are, are bad, and they actually have, uh, have 
brought their brought their destructive forces upon the creation. So which is it? See, they're not all the same. And to say that they're the same, uh, I want to suggest to you, um, well, that actually is dangerous because it shuts down dialogue. It's a form of intellectual uh, empiricism, imperialism, because what you're basically saying is, my understanding of religion is correct and yours is not. That is that they're all the same, and I'm going to enforce that, impose that upon you, you see. And so that really shuts down dialogue. I mean, we can't have a conversation. It's a naked assertion to say that all, all religions lead up to the path to God. They're not all the same. Okay, you say, well, then which religion? It still leads us to the question, why Christianity? Oprah, our neighbor, our neighbor, on an episode one time put the question pointedly. She said, who gets to say who God is? And a lot of people have, uh, have said, yeah, I mean, you know, none of us have the whole truth, and all of us are looking at this God thing from different perspectives, and we all know some truth, and we all have other things that we're wrong about. And so it's like, um, it's like blind men who are touching an elephant, right? One of them touches the elephant's tail and says, oh, uh, it's, it's um, flimsy and, and, ha- and hairy at the end. And another one touches the elephant's trunk and says, oh, it's sturdy and strong. And another one touches the elephant's um, stomach and says it's big and flat. And you say, well, 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 which is it? Well, they're all right and they're all wrong, right? And that's how it is. But you know, there, there's just one problem with that. And the problem is this. Leslie Newbegin, he was, a, he was a missionary in India, and he got that line a lot. And what Newbegin all of a sudden realized, he, he said, you know, in order to know that, to make that assessment, it means that the person making that assessment is not blind. That everybody else is blind, and they're holding, but you see the whole thing. You see the whole elephant, and you see each person groping around. To say that all religions lead to God and that every path goes up to God means this, that the only way you can say that for sure is if you stand on top of the mountain and see all the paths. See, so that's not actually, it sounds pretty humble, but it's not a humble claim at all. It's actually quite arrogant. Because you're saying, I see, and you don't. And so... So that it assumes that you actually do see when the whole point is to say that people don't see. But, but it also assumes something else that I think is really problematic. It assumes that God has not revealed himself in a particular time, at a particular place, in a definitive, full, and final way. But that's the exact claim that Christianity makes. See, look at verse 1. In verse 1, John tells us his message, the message of 1 John, the message of Christianity, which he calls the word of life. What is this word of life? Look verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What is this word of life? This word of life, this life which was the eternal life, which was with 
the Father before all time, is now made manifest to us, which we have handled and seen and heard. This life, what he's talking about is Jesus. The message is a person. See, Christianity, it's, it's not first and foremost a, a set of ethical values, that there's many ethical implications. Nor, nor is the message of Christianity um, tools for self-help, though there's a lot of help for self involved. No, the message of Christianity is a person. We proclaim Christ, the early Christians said. He is our message. And so that means that if you are going to understand, assess, investigate, or reject Christianity, then sooner or later you actually have to deal with the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and all his historical reality. H.G. Wells was a prolific author. He wrote social commentary, political commentary. He wrote history. He's most known today for his novels of science fiction, uh, for which he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize four times. Wells was not a Christian, but he called Jesus the dominant figure in history. He said, the historian simply cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving a foremost place to the penniless preacher of Nazareth. Though he left no impress on the historical record of his time, more than 1,900 years later, when Wells was writing, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this one man. See, what H.G. Wells is saying is he's saying this, even though I'm not a Christian, I have to say this, the life of Jesus, there was something unique about it. It has actually uniquely influenced history like no other life has. There's a, um, the most famous book on comparative religion probably that's used across the country or has been in print the longest and used across the country is uh, uh, Huston Smith's or he compares the world religions. And in it he says that there are two people in all of history, two people um, who people, when they looked at their lives, they asked not simply, who are you, but what are you? Those people are Buddha, he said, and Jesus. Jesus. You have to deal with Jesus. And you have to deal with the claims that his followers and he himself made about himself. And consider some of those claims. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus says, uh, when someone responded to him, Jesus, show us the Father. You know how Jesus responded? He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Two people in human history, Smith says, two people. Where people have looked at their lives and they've had to ask not just, not just who are you, but what are you? Buddha and Jesus. You know, Buddha never made the claims that Jesus did. 
Buddha never made the mistake, if you will, that Jesus did. Buddha didn't call himself God. Buddha didn't equate himself with the divine. But Jesus, he did. Who gets to who gets to say who God is? Who gets to say what God is like? God does. And Jesus is the man God became when God decided to become a man. That's what Christians claim. That's what John is claiming here that Jesus is the man that God became when God decided to become a man that God has revealed himself definitively, uniquely, particularly, finally in the person of Jesus. Look verse 2 again. The life was made manifest. The eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. That is the word that in the beginning was with God and was God, that that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that nobody has seen God at any time, but the only God who is at the Father's right side, His only Son, Jesus Christ, He has made Him known. That's the Christian claim. And if that is true, then that means that Christianity is not like all other religions. That it means that it uniquely reveals who God is. Okay, you say, but why should I believe that? still brings us back to that initial question. Why Christianity and why not something else? Why should I believe that claim? Well, I think the first reason why you should believe the message of Jesus, the message of Christianity, is because I believe that Christianity is intellectually credible. You know, if you were going to make up a religion, uh, this is free advice. If you're going to make up a religion, some of you might be thinking about that, let me tell you how to do it. Uh, the way that you do it is that, especially if it's a relative, a relative, or, uh, relative, I can't even speak this morning, especially if it's a religion based on revelation, this is how you do it. You have the revelation sometime when it is private and you're alone. And if there's any evidence of that revelation, what you want to make sure, like say there are golden tablets, you make sure that they're buried far away and you can't find them anymore. And make sure that the, everything about that revelation is ethereal and personal and private. And then you go talk to others about it. But here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to make it public. You don't want to make it verifiable. You don't want to make it so that there are witnesses. Uh, the last thing you want to do if you're going to make up a religion is to make it somehow falsifiable or verifiable. Right? Don't have eyewitnesses. Don't have witnesses. I want you to look at Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, handled concerning the word of life. You know, if John is making up a religion, he is hanging himself. Because, John, you're not supposed to make this verifiable. You're not supposed to make it. You're supposed to make it private. He says, no, no, it was public. You're not supposed to make it, John. You're not supposed to make it um, uh, uh, tangible. Make it ethereal. No, no, no. We handled it. We heard it. There are eyewitnesses, and not just one. I am an eyewitness. But we, there are multiple ones, and you can verify or falsify the account. 
the number one podcast, I think it's the number one over the last several years, has been the podcast Serial. Uh, Serial investigates, the season one investigates the 1999 murder of a um, Baltimore high school student. It's a tragic case. And uh, at the very beginning of it, uh, Sarah Koenig, she introduces the podcast, she narrates it, and this is what she says. She says, for the last year, I spent every day trying to find out where a school kid was for an hour after school one day. And she says, to be more technical, I've been trying to find out where he was for 21 minutes. You see, because the ex-boyfriend of the girl who was murdered, he was convicted. And there's a 21-minute window where he can't really explain where he was. He doesn't remember. And there were no witnesses and no alibis. And all you need is, is a witness, someone to verify or falsify the information. And the the podcast, you see how important that is. One way or the other. And if you're going to make up a religion, make it private, make it ethereal, make it unfalsifiable. But John, he says, no. Verses 1 and 2, we have seen it. And we have not only seen it with our minds, we have seen it with our eyes. See the the relative, relative, rel, uh, the claims of Christianity about the revelation of God, uh, they are very different than the claims that Joseph Smith makes, who received tablets and who are now, which are now buried and which we have no evidence of. The, the claims about Christianity, about the revelation of God, they are very different than the claims that Islam makes about Muhammad. Gabriel appeared to Muhammad, he claims, when he was alone in a cave. That's very different. You see, but the the claims of Christianity says that the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, it was public, and there were eyewitnesses. There was a book, it's very important, that was written about 10 years ago, 2006, by an ancient historian named Richard Bauckham. And Richard Bauckham, through meticulous investigation, I would recommend the book to you, but I'm going to tell you, it's, it's heavy reading. It's heavy reading. Uh, this, is, this is not Josh McDowell, um, more than a carpenter. If you were to go and read this, uh, Bauckham's basic investigation is into this. He says that the Gospels and the New Testament was based on eyewitness accounts, that there were eyewitnesses that people could go and they could verify or falsify the information with, and actually that uh, they follow the rules of ancient historiography and they let those eyewitnesses, specific people, throughout their Gospels. Have you ever noticed this, that in the Gospels there are all these minor characters? Have you ever noticed that some of them are named and some of them aren't? Why are some of them named and some of them aren't? Well, Bauckham says it's because they were the eyewitnesses. If you want to know what happened at the crucifixion when all the disciples ran away because you can't talk to them, where do you go? Well, you might go to Simon of Cyrene, but he's dead, so where do you go? You go talk to Rufus and you talk to Alexander, his sons, or who are in Rome. That's how you know. If you want to go find out about Jairus' daughter, 
Then you go talk to Jairus. Why don't we know his daughter's name? She was raised from dead. Maybe she wasn't around anymore, but you can find Jairus. Go talk to him. You see, throughout the Gospels, eyewitness accounts, eyewitnesses are named that people could actually go talk to, to verify or to falsify the information. And in uh, Bauckham, he says that, that actually in ancient historiography, when they were basing things on eyewitness accounts, they would use this catchphrase when they were saying, come on and verify this. And the catchphrase was, from the beginning. Look in verse 1 again. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and have looked upon with our hands concerning the word of life. We heard it, we saw it, and we passed it on verse That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, so that you may be joined to the apostolic community, which has gone now for 2,000 years. And so if you are investigating Christianity and serious about the man Jesus Christ, which I think anybody with, with any sense of intellectual integrity must do at some point. You have to come to terms with the eyewitness accounts of the gospel which has now been stewarded in a communal witness for 2,000 years. What do you do with that? See, I think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible. And here's what that means, that if God has revealed himself in history at a specific time, in a specific place, then we have to say this, we have to come to this conclusion. Not all religions are equally valid. Because God has revealed himself finally and definitively in his Son, It's like this. Uh, Picture it with me. Mom is turning 60. And the four children are sitting around and they're asking, how can we best honor mom for her 60th birthday? And one gives an idea. We we could go on a sailing trip. Another gives an idea. We can drive up to to Slow and go to um, the Children's Museum. They have kids. One says, we can, uh, we can do some wine tasting. Another says, we'll have a picnic. Another says, I know what we'll do. We'll all take a family trip to Hawaii. All good ideas, all equally valid ideas. I mean, who's to say who's right and who's wrong? Except what if on the, someone looked back and they came up with an email from mom's 59th birthday where she said, you know, I would love to do something like this for my 60th birthday. And what she said is, what I really want to do is, I want to go out to breakfast as a family, and then I want to go to the beach, and I want to go see the kids, build, uh, my grandchildren build sandcastles. Well, if you found that, then guess what? All those ideas are not equally valid anymore. 
They're not equally valid ways to honor mom because mom has now said, and it is clear, this is how I want to be honored. This is who I am. God has spoken definitively in history. And we actually have to listen to him. And that means that it's incumbent upon everyone to listen to his revelation, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. You see, I know a lot of people say, especially if they're not from a Western culture, a Western tradition or a Christian tradition, they say, well, wait, how come, how come I have to go there, to that place, to that time? How come I have to come into the Christian community? I mean, if God is the God of all the world, then can't he reveal himself to me personally? Specifically, without me having to, to relocate myself socioculturally. Well, I have two responses to that. One is this Jesus was not Western. We have removed ourselves as well. The second thing, though, is this that, that, that if actually God cares about history, and if He acts in history, and if He's redeeming history, and if He's redeeming us as we are as humans in all of our relationality and connectiveness, then that means this that God can't simply reveal Himself to us as individual monads because then we would never be connected. But no, he calls us all to a single place at a single time to unite us together in history because he is redeeming us in all our relatedness and all our embodiedness and all our historically situatedness. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, speaking of his cross, I will draw all men to myself. And so we have to go there. When I first moved to Santa Barbara, I was having a meeting with another pastor in town and the pastor said, I'll meet you at Pete's on State Street. And then he gave the address. Well, I got up very early that morning, and I walked up to Pete's on State Street. If you are from here, you know that there are two Pete's on State Street, and they aren't next to one another. And I was at the wrong one. And I call, and I say, you know, where are you? And he says, I'm at, you know, 5026 whatever State Street at the Pete's there. I'm here waiting for you. And I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, but I'm here. And he's like, well, if you want to get to know me, then you need to come to the address where I'm at. This is where I've revealed myself to be this morning. <laughs> and I had did. I got in the car and I had to go there. If God has revealed himself at a specific place, in a specific time, in the frame of a certain man with certain cheekbone structure, a certain height and weight and stature and disposition, then if we want to understand who God is, then we have to go there. And Christians have always said that if you really want to know God, then you have to stare into the face of Jesus Christ, and not just into the face of Jesus Christ, because God's fullest revelation of himself was not just Jesus, but it was the crucified Christ. And so you need to look there, at a hill outside Jerusalem, at a naked man, and his bloody shame. And that's where God says, 
this is who I am. This is who I am. Why? Why would God reveal himself in that way? How peculiar. Well, that leads me to the second reason why I think that you should believe the Christian message. It's not simply that the Christian message is intellectually credible, which I believe it is. It's also that it's existentially satisfying. Because the Christian message, Jesus, he deals with our two greatest existential problems or questions. Loneliness and death. Look in verse 3. John writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That the whole point of the revelation, John is saying, is actually toward a goal, and the goal is fellowship. I want you to think back in life about the times in which you were most happy, most satisfied. I bet it was the times in which you felt like you were flourishing most relationally. The times in which were most relationally rich. Well, how much more so with God? Because I believe you were made for a relationship with God. And it's in a relationship with him that we find abundance and full joy. That's why John goes on to say in verse 4, we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. See, see, John is saying that this, all this revelation is so that you might have a relationship with God. Now, a lot of people claim to have a relationship with God. But how do you know that relationship's authentic? John says the only place that you can have authentic relationship with God is in Christ. No one comes to the Father except for me, Jesus said. Because it's in Christ that God has definitively and finally revealed himself in flesh. Why did God take on flesh and reveal himself to us in Jesus in that way? Well, think of it like this. What do you need to make a good relationship work? Well, you need to be able to communicate, right? Communication is key to any good relationship. I was, um, I was counseling a young married couple, and I asked them how they met. You'll know the couple I'm talking about, I think. She was from Brazil, and he was from New York. Some of you will know. And, uh, and I found out that um, they met on State Street, and uh, she, the Brazilian, was here studying English. Uh, her English was not great at that point, but it was, it was decent. She went back to Brazil. He went back to work. But after work, every day, he went and worked on his Portuguese through Rosetta Stone. Every day. For like six hours, he would go straight from work. He would go get on Rosetta Stone, and he would work every day. Rosetta Stone, for those of you who don't know, is a computer program that helps you learn a language. And it helped him learn a language fast, but he was motivated. I mean, real motivated. So they're talking all the time on the phone, and he's going in the middle of the night and such or whatever, and he's going and, and, and he's learning his Rosetta Stone so that he can go and visit her, so that he can be with her, so he can relate to her. You know, it, Knowing someone else's language is important for communication. But, you know, it's not just about language because 
most people know that the majority of communication is nonverbal. Why did God take on flesh? To make himself relatable. To make himself known. So that we could have a relationship with him. A relationship requires communication. A relationship also requires understanding. And there's no greater aspect of understanding than empathy. You know, empathy says not simply I'm for you, but I'm with you. And there's probably no greater power than having someone when you've been through something come and say when you've gotten vulnerable with them, I know. I know what that's like. Yeah. There's no greater act of empathy than the incarnation, than God becoming a human. Because in becoming a human, he went through every experience that we do, what is common to us all in our extremities, the ups and the downs, the joy and the pain, and he did so that he might say, me too. Some of you here this morning are depressed. Jesus knew depression. He says, me too. Some of you here this morning are anxious. Jesus knew anxiety. He knew so much anxiety that he had drops of blood coming out of his pores. And he says, me too. Some of you here are lonely. Jesus, he knew loneliness. He says, me too. Some of you are hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to be poor and to hunger. And he says, me too. Some of you have lost friends or loved ones really recently. And Jesus lost one of his best friends, Lazarus. He knows what it's like and he says, me too. Too. See, he, he entered in, he identified with every single experience that we've had, even to the most extreme. He identified with us even in death. Now, why would he do that? You know, death, we say it's natural and normal, yet we avoid it at all cost. We speak of it in euphemisms. We say things like, he passed away, she's gone on to a different place, even if we don't believe in a different place or another place. Uh, we shield our kids from it and we don't take them to funerals. We say it's normal and natural, we say it's no big deal, and yet most of our lives we're actually trying to avoid it, shield ourselves from it. There was a psychologist, not a Christian, by the name of Ernest Becker, and he wrote a book that won the Pulitzer Prize called The Denial of Death. In that, Becker says that humans are basically aware, we're aware of our mortality, and yet we're unable to bear this knowledge. And he says, in the past, we were able to use religion to deal with it. But now in a scientific age, we need more convincing illusions, is what he calls it. 
The interesting thing about um, Becker's work is not so much his thesis about humans denying death and doing that in all sorts of ways. It's actually how he goes into the strategies of how we deny death. One of those strategies, he said, is that we are, um, he calls perpetual distraction. And we work a lot. We stay busy. Uh, Today, he might say we're on social media. Another thing that he, another way that he says that we deal with, uh, we deny death is through what he calls um, immortality projects. We try to create things that make us have a sense of meaning and purpose, even though there, we know that there is no meaning and purpose, he says, from his perspective. And we do this so that we think that, that you know, we'll go on and on and on, that we'll have a legacy. And so we just pour into our families, or we try to live an institution at work, or, or something, so that we will go on and be remembered. So here's the thing. No matter how much we try to deny death, no matter how much we try to avoid it, sooner or later it's going to touch every one of us very personally. Because you can't be sure about a lot of things in life, but you can be sure about this one. Ten out of ten of us will die. Ten out of ten of us will die. And so the Bible, it doesn't say that death is normal or natural It actually says trying to avoid death is normal and natural. Trying to ignore it is normal and natural considering the circumstances because because death, the Bible says, is the enemy. It's not what we were created for. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Why did Jesus identify with us in death? That we might identify with him in life. Eternal life. Notice that John calls this message in verse 1, the word of life. And in verse 2, he says that Jesus is the eternal life. Jesus identified with us in the depths of death, so he might take us and rip us out of death and bring us into his eternal life. That we might have a relationship with him forever and have joy and satisfaction, and peace. It's what we all want. To have someone know us, and to love us, to know us at a deep, empathetic level, but to love us out of that, and forever, That's what the message of Christianity offers. And because that is true, we have to go to Jesus. If you're investigating Christianity, Christianity is unique. Jesus is unique. He has revealed himself. Go to him. If you are already a Christian, Christianity is unique. Jesus is unique. God has revealed himself 2,000 years ago in a specific man, at a specific time, in a specific place, and he has brought us into the fellowship of the apostolic community and the fellowship of the Trinity. Why? So that we might go and tell. 
so that Jesus might draw all men to himself. God, we do pray that you would draw us to yourself for the first time or the first time in a long time and that you would send us out confident of your unique love. In Jesus' name, amen.